Thank you, Pastor Arash, for that great message on the topic of introducing me. And hi, everybody. Welcome back to our Digital Campus broadcast. This week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different uh, than we've done so far in the pandemic. We are going to be having the theme this week of potluck, which means, really, essentially, that there is no theme for this week. Because in a potluck, what do you do? Everybody brings their own food, and then everybody eats everybody else's own food. There's no, like, one theme or one kind of food. Everybody brings whatever they have to bring. And so that's going to be what this week is. We are going to be having a potluck, and each speaker is just going to bring their own individual by-itself theme, and uh, we'll, we'll have some good potluck in the word. So uh, before I uh, bring to you tonight's topic, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being with us throughout this pandemic, and thank you for providing us with all that we need while others might not have everything that they need. Thank you, Jesus, for continuing to give us faith in you, and thank you for letting us know that you have everything in control. Lord, be with our broadcast tonight. Help us to open our hearts and ears for what you have to give to us, to all of us, myself included, and help us to have a good evening for the rest of tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, I will be very straightforward. I kind of um, stole the title for tonight's message directly from a film, uh, which I hope all of you know. And if you don't know what film I'm talking about, once I start talking about it, I would very much suggest you go and watch it because it's an amazing film. But uh, my topic uh, of discussion for tonight, the lesson title, is called You're a Wonderful Life. And if if you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably need to go watch the movie. The movie is It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra in 1946, starring Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart. It's an amazing movie, and I'm going to try and stay on topic and talk about what I need to talk about, and not just gush about what an excellent movie this is, because I just, I love this movie. Every single step through the journey and the story of this movie is excellent. Okay, I'll stop pushing for you to watch the movie. Go watch the movie if you haven't. And if you have, well, congratulations on having seen one of the best films ever, in my opinion. The storyline basically uh, is George Bailey. He's growing up in small town America, and uh, it, it's very typical small town America. Everybody in the town knows everybody, and nobody really ever gets out of the small town. Everybody just stays there. Um, but the problem is, as George keeps getting older, um, he has big dreams. He's had big dreams since he was a kid. He wants to travel the world and be an architect for great, amazing places internationally. But as his father's health deteriorates, he ends up being the interim kind of chairman for the building and loan that his father is running, which is being opposed by the evil and wicked um, Mr. Potter, who's the town Scrooge, if you will. So he ends up being chair for that, and then that eventually leads to him becoming the full-time runner of the Bailey Building and Loan, thereby giving up his dream to go and be an architect around the world. And then his younger brother, whose life he saved, goes off to war, and he's a war hero, and suddenly now uh, his little brother is like this big hero in town, and so he's the big name. And then around Christmas time, unfortunately, his uncle Billy misplaces some money literally in the lap of the evil Mr. Potter, and suddenly the building and loan is in debt immediately, and George has absolutely no idea what to do, 
And so he goes to Mr. Potter in a last-ditch effort to save the building and loan, which has tons of people's money in it, and so there's a lot on the line here. And he goes to Mr. Potter, and Mr. Potter asks him what he has to offer him as collateral. And George says, basically, I, I don't have anything except for uh, a life insurance policy. And the life insurance policy was worth piddling cash. But So Potter was like, oh, you poor boy, you're worth more dead than alive because you have nothing to offer except for this life insurance policy. And unfortunately, poor George took that to heart. So he goes out to a bridge and he's about to take his own life because he considers himself worth more dead than alive. At that moment, a, jolly, a, a cheery, jolly angel hops into the river forcing George to abandon his thoughts of suicide, jump into the river, and save this angel. And then finally, when they get out of the river, the angel tells George, I'm an angel. George doesn't believe him because he's, he's already being sort of cynical at the moment, and who's going to believe that he would be an angel? But George, in conversation with this man slash angel, um, comments that he's worth more dead than alive, and he wishes that he had never been born. Now this angel takes that also to heart, and he orchestrates the universe such that George was never born. So George walks around his small town America of Bedford Falls, and he sees what this town would be like without him. Except that there is no Bedford Falls anymore. It's Pottersville, because Mr. Potter, in George's absence, has taken over the entire town. Now it's like a sin city, if you will, full of strip clubs and poker joints and just bars and it's it's nothing like the wonderful sweet american town that he left behind and he's in disbelief because he he can't wrap his mind around the fact that this this is bedford falls now because he didn't believe that he was an angel in the first place so suddenly it's like he's in this town where he knows all these people but none of them know him because he was never born then it really hits home when he, he discovers the grave of his little brother, who was a war hero. But the problem was, George had saved him when he was a little child. So then his little brother wasn't around to save all those people and be a war hero. And then, of course, his wife doesn't know him. He doesn't have any children. His house, which he had bought with his wife and fixed up from basically a haunted mansion into something great, suddenly now... It's gone. So basically, he goes back to the bridge. He begs God, please, I want to live again. I want to live again. And just then, he lives again. He goes back home, and it turns out that all of his friends and family have united to help out their so good friend that has always been so good to them throughout their entire lives and save his butt by saving the Bailey building and loan. And so it ends being a wonderful life. So why have I given you this synopsis? Well, let me tell you another story. It comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 41. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which in translation means Dorcas. So uh, the Hebrew name was Tabitha, and then translated uh, it was Dorcas. She was continually doing good deeds and acts of charity. At that time, she became sick and died. When they had washed her body, they placed it in an upstairs room. Because Lydda was near Joppa, when the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men and urged him, come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him crying and showing him the tunics and other clothing Dorcas used to make, uh, sorry, used to make while she was with them. 
But Peter sent them all outside, knelt down, and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her get up. Then he called the saints and widows and presented her alive. So the correlation here is that Tabitha, or Dorcas, but I'll call her Tabitha just for the sake of consistency. Tabitha, from looking at her, you wouldn't have thought that she would have had that much impact on a community. You see all these people weeping and mourning over her, like, not just, oh man, Tabitha died? Oh, shucks, man. Shame. No, they're weeping and mourning, and they're in her house, and they're crying and wailing because Tabitha is gone. She was, she just did good deeds and acts of charity. She apparently made some clothes for them, but like, I mean, clothes? Is that really that big a deal? I have my own story to share now. Um, as many of you know, I went on an AIM trip. AIM stands for Associate Missions, for those of you who didn't know. And I went on an AIM trip for four months to Paraguay. I lived there for four months, helped out the mission there, learned more about my Spanish, uh, solidified my Spanish fluency, made friends there. It was an amazing trip. And then I came back. Uh, it was a Tuesday when I came back. Well, it was a Tuesday when I left Paraguay, which means that on the like 18 hour trip to uh, the US, it was Wednesday by the time I got here. So, um, then I, I got to the airport, I went home, uh, I got McDonald's, which was awesome. Uh, it's, it's better back in the US, by the way. Um, but So I came home and I really wanted to see everybody in the church because my family was going to be leaving for vacation that, that Saturday, which means that I wouldn't be able to see all y'all in church on Sunday. So I really wanted to see some people from church who I so dearly missed. Um, so I went to KBN, Kids Bible Night, that Wednesday night. And so I went there and uh, I helped out with beginner quiz practice, which was great because uh, Dinah and Lily showed up for quiz practice and I got to surprise them and they were like, oh, Caleb is back! So uh, that was fun. And then um, I believe what happened was I finished beginner quiz practice and then as many of you know, Evelyn Tatro, Evelyn if you're watching this, hi Evelyn. Um, but Evelyn and Tatro have, Evelyn, Evelyn Tatro and I have a, a kind of special relationship. She's my little buddy. And so uh, I really wanted to see her uh, and all of the other kids in Kids Bible Night, but especially her. And so I was going over to the other building, the Fellowship Hall. And as I was walking out, I believe the Allens were getting out of their car. And they saw me and they lit up because they were like, oh yes, Caleb is back. And so they all were very friendly and they said, oh, we're so glad you're back. We missed you. We're happy you're home. And then Jada Allen, she came up to me and she was like, can I give you a hug? And I said, oh, sure, yeah. And so she hugged me and I hugged her and that was it. But I had no idea that Jada would want a hug from me just because I was gone for four months. I didn't know that I had that kind of impact on Jada. I didn't know that I had really that kind of impact on much of anybody in the church. Like, I mean, Evelyn, when she saw me, she came up and hugged me, but that's because children give love freely. They give hugs freely. That's, children are awesome that way. I, I really think us adults need to be more that way sometimes. But Jada came up and gave me a hug, 
because I had impacted her. I even still don't really know how I had impacted her. I can't point to a specific reason like, oh yeah, it was that one time in church where I shook her hand and I complimented her on her hair that day and her dress was pretty and so I told her that she looked good that Sunday. I can't do that. I don't remember any such instance. I, I just remember being there, being friendly to everybody, not Jada specifically, but everybody in church. I remember talking friendly to everybody, shaking everybody's hand. I remember just being there. And that was enough impact that when I got home, Jada wanted to give me a hug. Some of us need to some of us need to readjust our thinking about our impact in the kingdom. We're not just we're, it's not just that if you're involved in some big ministry like, oh, they're on the music team, they're really important. Or, oh, they're an AV. Well, I mean, without them, we wouldn't be having these digital broadcasts, now would we? Or, ooh, they're on the pastoral team. Ooh, they could have a really big impact, touch people's lives, like, actually. I mean, I, yeah, I, okay, I'm, I'm, touching, I'm touching people's lives. But, like, they're really touching people's lives, you know? I have a couple more passages of Scripture. This next one comes from 1 Corinthians 12. <laughs> Funny enough... Um, a, a little, a little behind the scenes, um, of the Digital Campus broadcast. If you don't know, I am the one who edits all of the Digital Campus broadcasts, and the most editing-intensive part of the broadcast is when the teachers have scriptures up there, because then I have to edit in scriptures, and not only edit in the scriptures, excuse me, I then also have to edit the timing of the scriptures, so that the scriptures fade in when they start talking about that portion, and then they fade out when they finish, and then fade into the next, and it goes on. So the most editing-intensive part of it is the scriptures. So every time that a preacher uh, or a teacher on the Digital Campus broadcasts has scripture, I get annoyed. Isn't that so stupid? The, the, the part that annoys me about editing the Digital Campus broadcasts is when they read out of the Bible. So I got a kick out of it for myself as I started assembling my notes for this lesson, and I had a bunch of scripture. So I'm sure that post-editing Caleb is having lots of fun right now, putting in tons of scripture. Post-editing Caleb can attest to the validity of this prognostication. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 21. For just as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so too is Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. For in fact the body is not a single member, but many. If the foot says, since I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it does not lose its membership in the body because of that. And if the ear says, since I am not an eye, I am not part of the body. It does not lose its membership in the body because of that. I want us to really focus on those two parts right there. If the foot says, since I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it doesn't lose its membership in the body. It doesn't cease to become a part of the body. If the ear goes, hmm, why don't I get to be an eye? They get all the, they get all the glory work. I'm just in here receiving auditory responses, reading uh, fluctuating waves in the air. Woo. Why can't I be an eye? They get to see all the good stuff. 
that doesn't mean that it's not part of the body. Its own refusal to be part of the body matters zilch. So you could say, well, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not really an important part at Newark. Who cares? I'm sorry if that comes off as a little bit rude, but we just finished a topic on honesty and kindness, and I'm gonna swing a little bit, a little bit more obviously to the honesty side. It doesn't matter what you think about your role in the body of Christ, whether it's important or not. It says it right there in the Bible. Unless you're going to start refuting the Bible and say the Bible is inaccurate, then I'm pretty sure it has accurately described that no matter what you think of yourself, no matter what others think of you, you are part of the body. You can't escape being part of the body of Christ. It's a tricky business. If you, if you get involved with this Jesus fellow, he's, he's in it for the long haul. You're not, you're not going to get out of it. Okay. Uh, verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, what part would do the hearing? If the whole were an ear, what part would exercise the sense of smell? But as a matter of fact, God has placed each members in the body just as he decided. If they were all the same member, where would the body be? So now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor in turn can the head say to the foot, I don't need you. So every part of the body is essential. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter what others think of you. It doesn't matter, it, it just, any circumstance that you can come up with, why you would be a lesser member of the body of Christ or why you wouldn't be any kind of member of the body of Christ, is honestly just baloney. You are a part of the body of Christ. But more important than all of that that I just talked about, all about It's a Wonderful Life and Jada giving me a hug and all that scripture of 1 Corinthians 12, all of that is it, so much more important than any of that, is how much God values you. Okay? So, Matthew chapter 18, verses 24 through 27. The context here is that Jesus has just finished giving his instructions on how to deal with conflict in the church. So he's, uh, if you remember our small group lessons, uh, way back when, in the time of the dinosaurs, before we were all in self-isolation. Um, he gives instructions on how to deal with conflict, like go with two or three members as witnesses, and then at the end of it all, it, it all just comes down to you have to forgive each other. And so Peter, brilliant, really intelligent Peter, goes, well, Lord, how, how many times do we have to forgive him? Would seven times be enough? And Jesus, I, I imagine, kind of rolled his eyes or did a little face palm and goes, no, Peter, no, you're, no, 70 times seven. That's how many times you have to forgive them. But obviously, is it, that's not a solid number. You don't have to forgive somebody only 490 times. It was an exaggeration of Peter's number saying, like, you have to forgive them as many times as you can, as it takes in life to forgive them for everything. But uh, in this context, Jesus started to tell this parable. Um, Matthew 18, verse 24, as he began settling his accounts, uh, the, uh, sorry, the context of the parable is there's this rich ruler, this powerful man settling his accounts. So, as he began settling his accounts, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, for historical context, we think 10,000 talents, whoa, like $10,000? That's a lot of cash. No, not $10,000. A talent was 
uh, historians um, have gathered that it was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. Now, a denarius, the plural being denarii, one denarius was about worth one day of labor, okay? So one talent is 6,000 denarii. So then 10, talent, 10 talents, uh, no, sorry, 10,000 talents would be worth 60 million denarii, which means 60 million days work of work, uh, 60 million days worth of work, which, if you do the math, is over 164,000 years of work done straight. Like, no weekends, no breaks, no vacations. No, you're in manual labor for 164,000 years. That's more than, uh, than really civilization, I believe, anyway. If, if it's not, forgive my ignorance. But I believe that that is more time than civilizations have been organized and developed on Earth. At least very advanced civilization. So, um, so that was how much he owed him, okay? Because he was not able to repay it, the Lord ordered him to be sold, along with his wife, children, and whatever he possessed, and repayment to be made. Then the slave threw himself to the ground before him, saying, Be patient with me, and I will repay you everything. No, you won't. That is so... There's no way to repay him. You can't... You don't live barely a hundred years back then, much less than a hundred years back then, but you can't... You cannot repay 164,000 years worth of work, okay? However, the Lord had compassion on that slave and released him and forgave him the debt. So this ruler just forgave this man of literally an unpayable debt. Okay? And then and then the story goes on to tying back to the context, talking about forgiveness. Um, he, he goes on to say that this person who was just forgiven this massive debt went and nearly strangled his, like, work companion for, like, a hundred denarii or something. I don't remember the exact detail, but it was a piddling amount. It was worthless. But he went and nearly killed somebody over that. So then the ruler brings him back in and says, I just forgave you that massive debt. Why would you do that to your brother? And then he locks him in prison for the rest of his days until he can repay the amount, which the point of the story is never. So if we want to be forgiven of our debt, we have to be equally forgiving to everybody else, which means if we want God to forgive us of everything that we do wrong, we are going to have to forgive everyone of everything they ever do wrong. So anyway, that's the whole point of the parable. What I want to focus here on this, this part of the 10,000 talents, 164,000 years worth of work. That's how much God loves us. He's willing to take on all of our debt, take on all of our sin, take on all of our brokenness, and just, it's gone. He takes it from us freely. All that we have to do is, you know, forgive everybody else, love God, follow his commandments. But I mean, compared to eternity in hell, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal. But uh, I, I'm not going to focus on that tonight. But, but And that's not even mentioning the fact that he came as a human. He survived his entire lifetime without giving into sin. We all know how hard that alone is. And then he died. He was crucified. He was mutilated, brutally just desecrated. All for us. Also that we wouldn't 
be in damnation for eternity. He loves you that much. And you're going to say you're worth more dead than alive? You're going to you're going to say you wish you'd never been born? What? That doesn't that doesn't compute for me, at least. I have a God who loves me beyond Literally beyond anything I can fathom. I can't think of 164,000 years worth of debt. And much like Jesus telling Peter it's 70 times 7, that's not an exact amount. If you worked for 164,000 years, you would not work off your debt. That's that's not how it works. Romans chapter, uh, I forget, is it Romans chapter 4? Yeah, it's Romans chapter 4. Uh, it, it talks about that, like, if if you work for something... And then you get that reward. That's not given to you freely. That's not given to you by grace. But if you uh, if you receive something without having worked for it, that is receiving true salvation and receiving true grace. Because we can't work for it. God gives it to us freely. So God loves you this much. Your life has infinite worth. Your life has worth beyond any any of our wildest imaginations. So, in conclusion, much, much like the, the story of George Bailey, you, you don't know the effect that you have on people. You, you have no idea what every single day of you doing the hard, the hard thing, taking the high road, forgiving them, loving them, being kind to those who, you, it's easy to be kind to, being kind to those who it's not easy to be kind to. Your life has unbelievable impact because you are a mirror of God. You are you acting as a Christian and our Christian walk with God is a mirror of God to the world. And they see us and they go, wow, that's crazy. I could, I could never do that. How could I do that? That's insane. I wonder what church they go to. <laughs> But even, even beyond that, you have infinite value in the eyes of God. You, your life is beyond worth. Your life is beyond worth because of how you touch other people. And your life is beyond worth because of how God has, has ranked your life in its worth. You are important. You are essential in the body of Christ. You are a wonderful life. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, we all know how difficult it is at times to remember our worth, remember that we are valuable. Sometimes life just beats us down and we get depressed, we get sad, we get desperate, we get beyond hope. But help us to remember, Lord Jesus. Help us to read it in your word that we have value in the body of Christ. Our brothers and sisters, they're important to us and we are important to them. And help us to remember, God, that even beyond that, we're important to you, Lord Jesus. Help us to remember that you love us with a love beyond any imagination or anything that we could possibly experience without you. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us in that way. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
And thank you for joining us tonight. Um, we do not have an engagement element this week due to the potluck nature of the broadcasts. However, I have an engagement for you. So you individually, uh, sorry, I individually have a, uh, an engagement for you. For all those of you who have not watched It's a Wonderful Life, that's your engagement. You need to watch It's a Wonderful Life, okay? But um, that's, that's obviously joking. Um, besides that, a serious engagement element Reach out to somebody outside of your immediate family and let them know how they have affected you positively. Let them know what they mean to you. It doesn't do any good to reach out to your spouse and say, Hey, I love you. Like, no, I mean, okay, do that because it's good to tell your spouse that you love them. But that's kind of a pre-assumed in, in marriage, or at least it should be a pre-assumed. Otherwise, why would you be married to the person? Um, but reach out to somebody like the person who sits next to you on the pew at church, the person who who you chat with at small group, and it just it just helps your week go along a little bit. Talk to the person who always has an encouraging word for you or share scripture with you that they have found helpful in their walk with God. Reach out to somebody outside of your immediate family and tell them what they mean to you. Remind them that they are a wonderful life. And that's the engagement element that I have for you. And with that, I thank you for joining this Digital Campus broadcast, and good night.